You're listening to audio from the Town Center campus of CA Church, located in downtown Coquitlam. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. In our home, it's always my daughter's bunny. Like right after, right before we're going to go outside the door, we're just leaving. It's like, where's Bunny? And we're looking all over the house for Bunny. Anyone else? What's something that you easily lose or you often lose them? Somebody in the balcony? Or up, up top? No. What? Lost your glasses. That's a hard one. Oh, that would have been a great... Oh, come on. <laughs> on your head. Amazing. Well, I spent so much of my life looking for things. And, uh, and you know, even at the grocery store, I, I hate grocery shopping because I find I'm, I'm always walking through the aisles of the grocery store. And I can be standing right in front of whatever it is I'm looking for. Sometimes it's like the tomato sauce. I'm standing right in front of it, scanning the shelf, and I just can't find what it is that I'm looking for. Or here's like a really kind of... A recent example in my own life of the searching and not finding. Uh, a few weeks ago, Jorley, my wife, um, asked me to, to go and get baby Tylenol from the cupboard in our home and to bring it because one of our, our kids was sick. And so I stood in front of the medicine cabinet and I opened the doors and I just scanned the shelf. I thought you guys were looking at a picture. I was like, what picture did they put behind me? Um, they, I was scanning the shelf and I looked over and over again. I spent a number of minutes, which actually felt like hours, looking for the, the baby Tylenol. I even moved some of the bottles and the boxes to see where it was. And so I kind of bashfully kind of yelled to my wife who was in the other room, like, I can't find it. I either can't see or it's not here, but either way, I can't find it. And so she walked in a little bit frustrated, walked to the ca- medicine cabinet. She opened the door and like immediately from the very front grabbed the baby Tylenol and then she stared at me. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know what to tell you. Like, I honestly looked and I couldn't find it. And and, uh, sometimes I'm looking right at something, whatever it is that I'm trying to find, and I just can't see it. And I feel like that's what a lot of people experience when it comes to to looking for God. Like, it's not that I don't want to see God. It's not that I don't want to know him. If there's a being, like, if there's a creator who's behind all of this, then of course I would want to know him. But I've looked in all the places that 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 I know to look And I just don't seem to be seeing what everyone else is seeing. I think every human heart has this longing to know what's behind all of this. And they might not articulate it as this desire to to see God. But all of us, intrinsically, at least at certain moments in our lives, have this this desire to know why. Why the world? Like, why, why me? Why am I here? Who's responsible for all of this? Maybe the thought comes while you're lying awake at night thinking to yourself, like, there has to be more to life than this. More to life than what I'm experiencing and seeing. I really believe that that deep down, all people long to see God. Long to see the one who flung the galaxies into existence and who made the beautiful sunsets and the mountains and the human body. There's this longing in every human heart to encounter the divine. Whether it's consciously or unconsciously, we're all searching for him. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, that the one who will find him, the one who will actually see him, is the pure in heart. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Isn't that a beautiful promise? They'll see God. As far as I'm concerned, it's the most beautiful promise that Jesus ever made, to see God. But what does that even mean? And on top of that, when will they see him? When will the pure in heart see God? Is Jesus talking about seeing God like after we, after we die? Is he saying that with our resurrected bodies in the age to come, that's when we'll see him? Or is he saying that the pure in heart will see God like right now? That some way and somehow God uh, will, will see God in the here and now? I think the answer to those questions is yes. 
that the pure in heart will see God both now in part and one day in full in the age to come. Paul, one of the biblical authors, he puts it like this. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then in the future we'll see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. I love the way Eugene Peterson, a Bible scholar, how he articulated this. He said, we don't yet see things clearly. We're squinting into a fog, peering through a mist. But it won't be long before the weather clears and the sun shines brightly, as it has over this last few weeks in BC. It won't be long before the sun shines brightly. We'll see it all then, see it all as clearly as God sees us, knowing him directly, just as he knows us. See, those who are pure in heart, who are in sync with God and his promises, they have this promise that they'll see him one day, that they'll see him fully in all of his glory and all of his majesty in the age to come. That just like Adam and Eve who walked in the garden and saw him as clearly and vividly as I can see you, as you can see me, that, that, that we'll see him. But Jesus also seems to say that we'll see him, that the pure in heart will see him. Not only that, they don't only have to wait for God to see him in the age to come, but that they'll begin to see him now in both ordinary and profound ways, in both the mundane and in the sacred. They'll see him in ways that others don't, that others can't. And, and I don't want to oversimplify this too much because I think there's so much mystery to this sixth beatitude and what exactly Jesus means by seeing God. But I do want to kind of articulate a few examples of, I think, where we, where we can start, where we can see God at work in our ordinary lives. Like at the most basic level, the pure in heart see, see God in nature in the things that God has made. Scripture tells us that God actually reveals himself in, in the beauty of his creation, that those who have eyes to see will see God in, in a breathtaking sunset or in a waterfall or in a mountain range or in a cup of coffee or in a run through the forest. Like, have you ever had a moment where you're just so overwhelmed with the wonder of creation? Like you see one of those things or the sunset or whatever it might be and you say, you're just so in awe of this incredible God who didn't need to make food taste this good, but he did. Who didn't need to make the flowers or the sunset or the mountains so beautiful, but he did because he loves us. Pastor David often shares um, that, that one of the turning points for him in his life was actually on the top of a mountain peak in, in China where he saw this beautiful sunset come up. And it actually brought him to tears. He was a staunch atheist at the time. And it brought him to tears and to this moment where he realized, I don't actually know who to thank for this. And so this led him on a journey of discovering God as he saw him in the sunset and it led him towards Christ. All of creation points to the creator and the pure of heart. They see glimpses of him in all these pretty ordinary ways where other people don't. They also see God in humanity and other humans. See, each and every person is made in the image of God, imago Dei. And so those who are in sync with God, they begin to see, see God in, in the people that he's made. In Mark chapter 9, verse 37, Jesus is teaching his disciples. And as he teaches, he points to a group of children who are probably being quite, quite disruptive to what he was trying to say, probably talking over him and playing and being loud. And, and instead of shing them, <laughs> instead of shing them, what he does is he points to them and he, and he, and he uses it as, as an object lesson for his for his disciples, he says, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me doesn't only receive me, but receives the one who sent me. 
In other words, Jesus is saying that somehow we see him in the face of that child who's crying out for attention. In our kid when they're like, dad, 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 dad. <laughs> or in the laughter of telling knock-knock joke, knock, knock joke after knock-knock joke. You know, there, there, there's, there's this other parable where Jesus also talks about seeing him in the midst of, of, of others. And, and he, he talks about us seeing him being hungry and us feeding him, or being a stranger and us welcoming him in, or being sick and us nursing him. Do you know the story? It's in Matthew chapter 5. And his disciples ask him, they say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? Clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did for me. See, Jesus seems to be saying that, that somehow we see his face and therefore the face of God and the faces of the marginalized. You know, I think about Mother Teresa. I think one of the secrets to the joy she found in all the work she did in Calcutta year after year, she saw in the faces of the discarded child, the discarded infant, or in the older person who was left for dead, she saw in the faces of the vulnerable, the poor and needy, as she looked into their eyes, she saw the lover of her soul. I think that's one of the most beautiful and rewarding things about the, the food pantry that we get to do as a church as we serve a thousand people each month through our food pantry here is that as we serve, as we are actively the hands and feet of Jesus, we see him in the faces of those who are in need. The pure in heart also see God as they encounter his presence. You know, just knowing him, the sense of his nearness. Colossians 1 says that, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that when we see Jesus, we see God. But so many people miss him miss out on experiencing his tangible presence because we're distracted by so many things. Maybe because we're, we're not expecting to see him in these various ways. Even his disciples, when he was with them physically, there's a story that, that's repeated in all three gospels, and so it's likely quite important. His, his, his disciples, they're struggling in the midst of this storm. There's waves, they're on a boat. There's waves and, and wind and all this crazy stuff going on. And as they're fighting the storm on the boat, Jesus is walking on water. And, and here's what it says. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. So they're in the midst of this chaos of the storm. Jesus walks to them on the lake. And this is, this is what I found interesting in my reading this week. He was about to pass by them. It says he's about to pass by them. In other words, he came to them, but maybe they seemed pretty confident on their own. <laughs> they were kind of doing their, their boat thing themselves. And or, or they didn't notice him, and so he came, and, and he was about to pass by them. And that's always how Jesus does it. He's never forceful in the way that he comes. He doesn't come and demand our attention. He comes softly and gently, in meekness. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking at the lake, they thought it was a ghost. They cried out because, because they, they, they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Jesus' disciples, they encountered him in the midst of that storm. And maybe Jesus doesn't often come walking on, you know, Rocky Point on the beach there, on White Pine or wherever, whatever bodies of water around us, but he does come to us by his spirit, often in the form of a whisper, a sense of his nearness. He meets us in scripture. But just like the disciples in the fishing boat who were so distracted by the wind and the waves and almost missed him, 
It can be so easily the case. We can miss him. He can pass us by without us even realizing that he was here. But the pure in heart, they see God in ways that others don't, in ways that others so easily miss. See, as we journey with Jesus and our heart becomes pure, as we, as we become aware of all the ways that he's active in the world and in our lives, and, and our posture increasingly becomes that of the posture of Jacob from the Old Testament, where he says, surely the Lord was in this place and I wasn't even aware of it. We begin to see God all around us. As we see glimpses of him, as we see glimpses in, in a child or in the marginalized, in oceans, and encountering him through scripture and prayer and all the rest, it creates in us this longing to see him fully. Or to use the words of St. Augustine, it creates in us this longing for home, this longing for the future reality, the age to come where we'll see him face to face. When the mist and the fog, as Paul talked about in, in 1 Corinthians, where it's lifted forever and we experience this uninterrupted, ongoing relationship with God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Okay, I want to spend the, the remainder of our time together looking at what it means to be pure in heart. Because if that promise of seeing God is specifically for the pure in heart, then how do we become that kind of people? How do we, how do we become someone who is pure in heart? Well, I think it's easiest maybe to start with what it isn't. Because it's so easy to hear those words, pure in heart, and to assume or to have misconceptions about what Jesus is even saying in this beatitude. So firstly, purity of heart is not about perfection. And here's how I know that. Because every person in scripture that's described as having a pure heart or a heart after God, a person who pleases him is far from perfect. Think about David, King David. In 1 Samuel 13, God says, David is a man after my own heart. But even if you just do a quick flyover of David's life and just look at kind of the big points throughout his life, you will see he is anything but perfect. David, David knew he was a mess. This is a guy who, who committed murder and, and did all sorts of other horrible sins. This is the guy who's after your heart, God? But see, David's purity of heart, it wasn't about perfection. David knew he was a mess. We see it come up all throughout the Psalms as he's reflecting and writing these Psalms and poetry that he, he, he really understands that, that he's, he has this poor in spirit attitude about him, knowing that he is spiritually bankrupt and in need of the grace and mercy of God. He, he didn't always do the right thing. But one thing that was clear is that he mourned over his sin. This is where you see all the Beatitudes starting to come into play together. He mourned over his sin. And, and, and when he failed, and sometimes he failed big, he would fall on the mercy of God and get back up again. Purity of heart is not about perfection. But it is about congruency. Or you could say integrity. It's who you are when no one's looking. It's this congruency between your public life and your private life where they're so in sync that who you are on stage or who you are in the boardroom or in the lunchroom or in your first grade class or who you are in, the, in these different places is, is, is so in sync. Who you are with your spouse when you're fighting, who you are with your children, with your parents, when you're traveling alone in a hotel room. There's this integration of every aspect of your life. The person you are in public is also reflected in what your kids say about you. And the thing that the outside world says is consistent with your internet search history. See, see, purity of heart isn't about perfection, but it is about congruency. It's about integrity. Um, let me illustrate this. I am a bit of a neat freak. 
okay? This might be something you don't know about me, but I really like my spaces to be really clean and tidy. Um, to, to this level, this is where it gets a bit weird. We don't even have a microwave or a toaster oven because I hate cluttered countertops. <laughs> and so we do without those kind of pretty essential appliances <laughs> because we would rather have a clean, flat kind of, you're there with me, Laura? I would rather have a clear countertop than the mess of all these things. I know, you're, you're looking at me like, who is this guy? Um, but I, I love a, a really clean space. If you come to our house, most of the time what you're going to find is like a really minimalist, very clean, tidy space. I don't know, do you guys have the picture of my living room? Maybe you don't. But just imagine with me that it's very clean and crisp. Okay? But here's the thing, and this is where I'm going to expose, uh, where I'm gonna expose the, the, the darkness that's within me. I'm going to be very vulnerable with you guys. My, my tidy home is a bit of a facade because in order to maintain that kind of clean exterior for when people come over, when I come home from work and our house is a mess, I just start throwing stuff into closets and cupboards and any, anywhere that I can kind of get out of the way to maintain this kind of clean space. We have this den in our house, this storage room, and we clean it up once a quarter or so. Um, but over that quarter, as it begins to build back up, it gets filled with stuff to the point where there's, there's a certain point where we no longer let our kids in the room <laughs> because something might topple over on them. Or there's the junk drawer. Anybody have a junk drawer? Yeah. I'm going to show you my junk drawer, okay? Can you put it on the screen? Yeah. Now you're like, okay, this is why you couldn't find the Tylenol. <laughs> but no, our medicine cabinet is a lot cleaner than our junk drawer. But, uh, but, but, <laughs> but again, on the surface, if you come to my home, it's put together. It's clean. But behind closed doors, there's all these little messes. And so often, I think we do this with our spiritual lives. We clean up certain parts of our lives, especially the stuff that people can see, the stuff on the exterior. Maybe we clean up our language and we dress the part and we, and we know what to say in community group to maintain a certain kind of understanding or an image of spiritual depth. Maybe we can kind of dial in our scripture reading. We come to church every single week. On the exterior, everything is good. All the while, there's these junk drawers that are wreaking havoc in our lives. These secret sins that no one knows about, but deep down they're destroying us. You know what I'm talking about? We can get so good at presenting this image of, of this clean exterior, so focused on outward conformity and, and an image of perfection that, that we absolutely miss the point. We can even trick ourselves into thinking that we're doing better than we are because we check off all the Christian boxes and do all the Christian things. But following Jesus isn't primarily about external conformity. Jesus confronts the Pharisees and the religious teachers about this on several different occasions. But look at uh, Matthew chapter 23, verse 25. He said, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but on the inside it's full of greed and self-indulgence. Okay, I'm not typically a, a prop guy, but as I was drinking my smoothie on Wednesday morning... I had this kind of click of, this is what Jesus is talking about. And so I intentionally did not clean the inside of this since Wednesday for this illustration. There's a bit of mold growing in the inside of this. It's quite gross, quite disgusting. But, but how ridiculous would it sound if I told you, oh yeah, yeah, I didn't clean the inside, but don't worry because I have this beautiful natural cleaning product and I've been cleaning the outside of the dish. And so if you look at it in the light, you can actually see the outside is very, very clean. The inside, like this... I can't really do anything with this cup because if I fill it up and try to drink water from it, what's inside, the gunk and the grime is going to pollute whatever I put inside it. But the outside's clean. You'd look at that and you'd say, well, that's nonsense. 
But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law often focused solely on the outward practices. They kept all the rules. They observed the Sabbath, not eating pork, regular temple worship, attending all the Jewish celebrations, circumcision. The Pharisees could be characterized as saying, blessed are the outwardly clean, for theirs is the kingdom of God. They shall see God. There was no one better at doing all the right things than the sacrifices and the festivals and memorizing the Torah. The Pharisees often get a bad rap, but they were amazing at following the law. They did it impeccably. But then Jesus comes on the scene and he he absolutely flips the script on its head and he seems to say that who you are on a heart level, that what happens on the inside is just as important or you could say more important than actually what you do, that what's seen on the exterior and this is a bit of a mixed metaphor, but I really think that, that, that so often we struggle to see God because you remember that passage of scripture from Paul where he says we're looking through, a, through, through glass, looking at God, and we see him very dimly. I think when we're looking through the glass and trying to see God, oftentimes the muck and the grime and the stuff in our life that's been unsurrendered to him, it's blocking us. We're trying to see through the glass. I'm trying to see Tony, but all I see is like the blueberries and mold and spinach that was in my smoothie. Oftentimes, we're trying to look for him. We clean the outside of the glass, but we've neglected to clean the inside. And so we actually can't see through it. We can't see God. Purity of heart isn't about outward conformity. It's actually about inward transformation, being transformed from the inside out. And and let me be clear, just like we talked about, about every single one of these beatitudes, this is not a characteristic that we can live out in our own strength. We cannot be pure in heart in our own strength. Believe me, I've tried. We can't will ourselves to purity of heart. This is something that the Spirit of God does in us. And it actually starts when he gives us a new heart. When he exchanges our our hard, sinful hearts of stone for a soft, pliable, moldable heart. The miracle of salvation is is, is one where where he he purifies our heart. But we, we don't only need an improvement to our heart. We actually need a new heart and God does that for us. The prophet Ezekiel, he, he prophesies about this, and he says, our heart of stone, God exchanges for a heart of flesh. And then through the process of following Jesus, over time, over a lifetime, he begins to expose the lies that have taken root in our lives. He begins to uproot healthy mind, unhealthy mindsets and addictions and wrong ways of looking at the world. He begins to change the way that we think about other people, the way that we think about ourselves. We begin to hate our sin and, and long to be free from it. He begins to reorganize the furniture in our home. He begins to deal with our junk drawers, in our dens, in our storage rooms. Because the pure in heart is not, someone, not something that, that you pray one time and, 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 you're, and you're pure. This is, that's the start. But the pure in heart, they daily come back to the foot of the cross and echo the words of David where he says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me into your way everlasting. Search me. It's this exposing of ourselves to God, laying it all down in front of him, the good and the bad, and saying, test my motives, God. Purify me. Help me to see what I'm not seeing in this. Anything that needs to change, anything that's not of you, I surrender to you because what I want is to see you. And then then as he brings things to mind, attitudes and actions, pride, things that you've said that maybe you shouldn't, or things you've thought, prejudices towards others, unforgiveness that's taken root in your heart, habitual sin, whatever it might be, laying that before him and saying, create in me a clean heart. 
and restore a right spirit in me. It's not our perfection that makes us pure in heart. It's the work of Jesus. It's the work that he's done for us and what he's doing in us as he's purifying our hearts. But here's our part. Here's our only part. Surrender. Honest surrender of the whole thing. Okay, as we close, I want to loop back to where we started and remind you of the promise for those who are pure in heart. It says, those who are pure in heart will see God. One of my absolute heroes in the faith, um, Tim Keller, passed away on Friday. He had a three-year battle with cancer, and at 72, the cancer took his life. You know, Keller was an absolute gift to the body of Christ. I don't think any other pastor or thinker, theologian, has had a greater impact on my understanding of God and the gospel, what it means to follow Jesus, than Tim Keller. You know, most of us uh, on, on the preaching team quote Keller at least once in every sermon. Is that true, Brad? Uh, he's right up there with Daryl Johnson, at least for me. But uh, he's made this massive impact on the Western church. Like I'm talking, I think, on the level of C.S. Lewis or Jonathan Edwards or Dallas Willard, the, the greats. Anyways, as he moved through the battle with cancer over this past few years, I was so struck by how he dealt with this last season. He spent most of his life teaching us how to live for God. But I think one of the beautiful things of this last three years is, is we saw a picture of what it looks like to die well to die in relationship with God. And uh, his family shared these, these last words from him. This was the last prayer that he ever prayed before he prayed his last, uh, breathed his last breath. He just said, I want to see Jesus. I want to go home. You know, as he breathed his last breath on this earth, as he stepped into eternity, for him in that single moment, it went from seeing, seeing God with the fog and the mist to it completely being lifted and him being able to see God with clarity, to stare into the face of the lover of his soul, the one he'd given his whole life to serving and to following. How did he have such this confidence that he was going to see Jesus? I think he believed the gospel with his whole heart, that it was trust in Jesus that had made him right with God, that, that Jesus had made his heart pure. This is where the Beatitudes all become interconnected, because to be pure in heart is, is to be poor in spirit, and then you mourn over your own sin and, and you fall on the mercy of God. That makes you pure. Let's, let's pray. If you could uh, bow your head if you're comfortable all across this room as we, as we pray together. And here's what I want to ask you off the top. How is your heart? How's the inside of your cup? Or to switch the metaphor, how's your junk drawer doing? Let me just say this, we all have junk drawers. And if you say, you know what, today I don't think I actually have a junk drawer. Your junk drawer is probably pride. (laughs) (laughs) And so just expose that before the Lord and say, God, search my heart. Would you just pray this in the quietness of your heart? Would you search my heart, oh God? Reveal anything that's not of you that's blocking my ability to see you, to encounter you, to know you, and to love you. Reveal in me. Let's take a moment. Maybe you've done so, such an incredible job of keeping up appearances and external conformity that no one would ever know what's going on beneath the surface, that you're struggling. 
But in this moment, would you just lay that all before God? The good and the bad and the ugly. And just remember, he knows what's in your heart even if you don't say it before him. But just expose it all to him and say, Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. Purify my heart. Make me new. Spirit of the living God. We love you. We're so grateful for the work that you started in us, many of us long ago, and that you will bring to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. And so together, we just, we just take this posture of surrender. We know that it's you and your spirit that does the work in us, but we just expose ourselves to you. And we say, Spirit of the living God, would you make us new? Would you purify us by your spirit? In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.